Hi, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Today on the show, we are talking criminal justice reform. There's a series of high-profile reforms that were made by the state legislature and Governor Cuomo earlier this year, and they're set to take effect in January. And they've been stirring up quite a bit of discussion and controversy recently as law enforcement officials, advocates, elected officials, and others prepare for their implementation in the new year. They center around mainly bail reform and discovery reform, although there were other criminal justice reforms that were passed this year. So on today's show, we're going to talk to folks on two sides of the discussion. First, we're about to be joined by Staten Island District Attorney Michael McMahon, a Democrat from Staten Island, the chief law enforcement officer of the borough. He is going to discuss concerns he has with the package and how the implementation of the reforms might affect public safety. And then we'll talk to Marie Jai of the Decarceration Project of Legal Aid Society, who will talk about why these reforms are important and that there should not be changes made to them as some are calling for in the new year. This is a discussion, of course, that is going to continue throughout the end of 2019 and into 2020 if no changes are made by the legislature and the governor. Obviously, as designed, they will be implemented and discussion will continue about how they are affecting both the justice element of the criminal justice system and public safety and much more. And of course, it remains to be seen how well they will be implemented by local officials. So here's our discussion with Staten Island District Attorney Michael McMahon, followed by Legal Aid Society's Marie Jai. And we're joined by Staten Island District Attorney Michael McMahon. Thanks for joining us here on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's hear uh, sort of you've been raising some concerns about the criminal justice reforms that are set to take effect in January. Let's sort of hear your your broad critiques about what's coming down uh, that was passed in Albany earlier this year and you're concerned about with some of your colleagues in law enforcement. Sure. And, and I appreciate the opportunity. You know, uh, I don't think there's anyone uh, involved on a daily basis in law enforcement like myself, uh, the people in my office, uh, the people of NYPD or corrections or probations who didn't think that some reforms were needed. Uh, and there are many things in this package that I think are a good idea. Um, but there are some places where the legislation uh, went too far as is often uh, the case in Albany. And, you know, uh, I just want to start by talking about the process, about how we got here, and then, and then we can get into a longer discussion about the substance. But the, the process is just not the way to um, handle a very complicated issue like criminal justice reform. Rather than having uh, proposals and then having hearings, and meetings and coming to a, a, at least some sort of consensus after everyone had been heard. What they did in Albany is they they, they proposed a few bills, uh, and uh, rather quickly in April, they were all stuck into the budget uh, as part of a budget, uh, the, the state budget package. So they're passing an over $100, $100 billion budget package. It's probably, you know, when printed, uh, probably six feet high. And stuck in there were the, the bills that um, um, mandate the uh, criminal justice reforms that we now have to implement uh, the majority uh, this January 1st. So and that's not a good way to do the process. And people quite often say, you know, 
Uh, in New Jersey, they did criminal justice reform. Why are you guys complaining? Uh, and quite frankly, in New Jersey, it was a multi-year process. There was a commission set up. Uh, and when the bills were, when the legislation was actually passed, there was about a, at least a 24-month uh, implementation period. So that's not what happened in New York. The process uh, was awful. In the middle of the night, it literally voted on 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and unfortunately, when you do things like that without transparency, without um, input, uh, you get a much less than perfect uh, or much less than good package. Uh, certainly, I know it couldn't be perfect, but I would like it. Uh, to be good. So anyway, that that's what one of the things that we've talked about, and and that process has gotten us to where we are now. Where uh, I think there are many provisions in the in the legislation that are, could be hurtful to overall public safety. Mr. D. Uh, let me just interrupt for a second. I want to stop, uh, stay with process just for a sec. Uh, I guess you know someone might play devil's advocate and say that. The conversation wasn't new to New York State. I mean, Judge Lipman began talking about bail maybe five or six years ago. There was obviously the commission around Rikers Island that talked a lot about the role of pretrial detention. So, I mean, I think... There were some the, bills in Albany. Yeah, the conversation was not something that got inaugurated with the budget process and, and wrapped up with the budget last year. It, it did have a, a kind of pre-existence, correct? Well, listen, uh, uh, rightfully so, in New York State and across the country, people have been looking at the criminal justice system and thinking about how uh, best it could be reformed uh, to continue to serve public safety, uh, but also consider the rights of the accused. Um, that's not what happened here. And the final uh, uh, provisions that came out, some were not even, you know, some of the uh, uh, non-qualifying offenses uh, that no longer uh, a judge did not uh, fix bail to were never mentioned, were never proposed, and they showed up in the final package. So, yes, has, has there been a broader discussion uh, about criminal justice reform? Certainly. Um, but that's not the way the legislative process worked. Uh, there was a, a commission, uh, a, a, judicial, a, a joint task force that had been set up in New York that came out with proposals earlier last year. Uh, there was a discussion there, but any of those, any of that uh, process was not included in this. So why is it that, you know, New Jersey uh, did it right? They had a commission that came out with proposals, people could talk, um, and we could not have ourselves heard in Albany, to be quite honest. There was no formal hearing. There were no meetings. Uh, this was just sort of ran through in the night, and that's why you get a package now that people are quite upset with. All right, so let's hear about the, the more substantive side of things. I think, you know, there's obviously sure. some some legislators and advocates would, would disagree a bit on, on the characterization of the process, but um, moving on from that, the, um, the, the substance in terms of especially the bail reform and the discovery reform, I believe, are the real main uh, crux of the matter in terms of the critiques from yourself and others. Um, so why don't you take, yeah. us, take us through your, your, op, your, your points on those? So when it comes to the discovery reforms, there are two major uh, concerns that I have. First is the, the total disregard, disregard of the rights and protections of victims uh, of crimes uh, and witnesses of crimes. Uh, we've gone uh, to a place where we now have to turn over uh, the victims' names and contact information uh, unless we get a protective order. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the default is to disclose that, and that. If someone is a victim of crime, they're going to be dissuaded from cooperating with law enforcement because there's going to be further 
trauma to them for contact from the defense counsel and uh, so much so that if, if a crime takes place in, in, a, in a victim's home, uh, the victim's home then becomes discoverable upon motion and that people can go into their house. Uh, and that is a pretty traumatic thing. Uh, nowhere in this package uh, of bills is there any uh, mention or protection or provision of services for victims. So the victims are, are, are the big losers uh, in uh, this process. The other part of the discovery, and, and when I came into office almost four years ago, I implemented early action disclosure. We should not have trial by ambush. I am more than willing to turn everything over, but... Uh, to mandate it within 15 days of arraignments is really unworkable. When you think of the volume of materials that we have, we are deemed to have in our possession, uh, but we don't actually have, and we have to collect it, uh, go through it, and then turn it over, including now the body-worn camera footage, which could be uh, very, very voluminous. If you have a, a multi-officer uh, response, you have to gather all the body-worn cameras, uh, footage, you have to sort of it, collate it, and provide it within 15 days, that physically uh, and from a point of resource is really not uh, a workable um, uh, time frame. Throughout the criminal procedure law and the civil procedure law, the normal time frame for uh, discovery uh, is usually 30 or 45 days, and I think that would have been uh, much more workable. And, and again, no problem turning over the materials as soon as we have them, or even if the legislation said within 15 days of receipt by the district attorney it should be turned over, that would be workable. And again, I'd have no problem receiving something, being able to look at it, perhaps redacting information if it needs, uh, needed to protect uh, innocents or uh, innocent bystanders or victims, but they didn't give that to us. So that's gonna be something that I don't think it's gonna be workable, and I think it's gonna clog up the courts because it's gonna increase motion practice, and it's actually gonna delay uh, justice in many cases. But those are my two major concerns with the discovery uh, um, provisions. Uh, otherwise, we have no problem turning everything over and opening up our files completely. Uh, I think that's the right thing to do, and, and uh, we, we, we moved towards that already, uh, doing an open file process this year, but we'll, we'll continue to do that, and we'll try to make it work. And the, the problem is you need a lot of people to do that processing and, and discovery um, uh, turning over uh, disclosure, but um, the state legislature, in its infinite wisdom, did not provide one penny in resources to implement this massive overhaul of the criminal justice system. So, again, it's a budget bill. In, instead of providing resources to the local uh, district attorneys and public defenders, what did they do? They just passed the mandate and didn't fund it at all. I think, you know, it's interesting you've raised the, the, the issue of the, the volume and the timing, I think, is really interesting because, as you mentioned, with the, at least with the body-worn camera footage, there are other agencies that you would need to liaise with to get that on the timeline. So I think that, that raises a, a very interesting set of critiques. But go back to the, the question of, of being able to identify witnesses and being able mm -hmm. to see the crime scene. Um, you know, you've, you've been an attorney in private practice. If you were a defense attorney, how could you, you know, adequately defend your attorney? And what would be the meaning of discovery if you didn't get that, if you weren't able to talk to people about what they are claiming they saw, if you weren't able to look at the crime scene and therefore evaluate the theory of the crime? It seems like that would be kind of central to the whole idea of discovery. 
Uh, but there's, there are limits to that, even when it's prejudicial uh, to uh, the victim. Uh, you're, you're burglarized or you're sexually assaulted in your home, uh, and now you have to subject that to uh, an inspection. And, and it's, you know, the, the defense attorneys can certainly review uh, the crime scene evidence. They can look at the photographs to everything that the police have. They will certainly have and be able to evaluate it just like the police can. So what more do you need? than perhaps photographs and the physical evidence that the defense uses. Uh, I, I think that that's a little bit of a red herring to say, oh, you've got to, to do that to defend the case. And you also will have uh, statements of the defendant and everything else that we have in our hands, you will have in a much earlier time. But that, quite simply, I think, goes too far. And the prejudicial effect to, to the uh, victims far outweighs any uh, benefit that it would have to either the prosecutor or the defendant in those cases. Um, and again, you know, the, the next step you asked is about bail and, 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 and what uh, objections I have with that. You know, we are in the throes of a uh, serious uh, uh, opioid uh, drug epidemic here in Staten Island. This year alone, close to 70 people died uh, from uh, drug overdoses. Uh, and in the middle of that crisis, uh, the legislature passes a, a, a package that says that someone with A1 uh, felony weight possession, kilos and kilos of uh, uh, controlled substances, uh, and could have a, a, a pretty serious record, could have a history in drug dealing, um, and could be facing a, a very, very, very stiff uh, sentence, uh, would not be, a judge could not even consider uh, setting bail in a case like that. Recently, we had a someone who was arrested with six kilos of methamphetamine and tens of thousands of dollars of cash. Now, in that case, we had a, had a pretty significant record. And in that case, we were able to get bail. Come January 1st, we will not be able to get bail in that case, even though uh, I think someone in that circumstance would have a, a flight of risk. Let's let's uh, pause on that one for a second, I guess. Let's, use, let's continue with that example. Um, if bail is set in a situation like that, Aren't those defendants very often able to pay the bail amount to be able to 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 leave jail uh, un- until their uh, proceedings continue? I mean, what's the real value of setting a, a cash bail amount in a situation like that? Well, I mean, wouldn't there be a I, potential supervised release program in place now? You know, the, the um, in, in either in either case, something that would try to to help us assure that that person. Uh, would not see the jurisdiction uh, and return to, uh, you know, importing and, and, and selling those narcotics that kill people in my jurisdiction. But right now you wouldn't have anything. And, you know, you uh, sort of jumped into supervised release. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but supervised release is still a very limited program uh, in uh, Staten Island. Uh, we don't have the resources to provide uh, the, the, the services as much as perhaps will be needed now under the new provision, and the state uh, did nothing for us. And in most of the counties uh, across the state, there are no supervised release uh, programs. Uh, you, a lot of people say, well, in a case like that, why don't you use electronic monitoring like the federal government does sometimes? There is no electronic monitoring program uh, in the city of New York right now, and I think in the state of New York uh, for state cases. So, Yes, it would be wonderful if we had those services that could maybe help in some cases. Uh, but I hate to tell you, uh, Ben and Jeremy, Jer- we don't have, Jer- we don't have uh, those uh, 
services in the city of New York. So that's why a more comprehensive and thoughtful approach to this would have done two things, continue to ensure public safety and protect the rights of the victims and the individuals accused of crimes. But if you just sort of uh, ram it down the throat of the people of the state of New York this way, uh, you get you get a, a program that is going to be very, very uh, difficult to implement. Uh, you know, one thing, too, is that, again, people look, look to New Jersey and say, look, they did it, why can't we do it? Um, when it comes to bail in New Jersey, the, the judges have the right to consider uh, dangerousness or public safety as a factor. Uh, here in New York, we are one of only four states, I believe, that does not take that into consideration. Um, so you've got all these reforms, which you basically have now tied the hands of judges who, in a particular case, may think uh, it's absolutely necessary that someone be held without uh, bail or or, uh, or uh, held uh, uh, at least with some very restrictive conditions, and they do not have that option. In most cases, should the default be uh, not bail and try to find some sort of um, uh, conditions that allow for uh, release but with supervision? Yes, absolutely. But you totally uh, uh, foreclosed that in, in most in over 400 uh, crimes listed in the penal law. Uh, Dan McMahon, uh, I guess probably uh, as we as we come toward the end, uh, a question about the context in which this conversation is happening. Some of the lawmakers that have raised concerns about the discovery reforms and the bail reforms that will take effect on January 1st, they say that there is already a surge in crime beginning, uh, especially in, in, you know, there was an incident, I guess, at the Staten Island Mall uh, a couple weeks ago that folks have pointed to as an indication of kind of growing disorder in the city, and they blame the general atmosphere of reform um, of which these pending reforms are sort of the latest iteration. Are you seeing that kind of a change in the crime landscape in the city, and do you blame um, the reforms that have occurred already to this point? How much do you think that's an accurate representation of reality? Yeah, yeah I, I, I cannot say that I think that that's a, an accurate representation, except in certain areas where I do see an increase in, in uh, criminal or violent behavior that does concern me. Generally speaking, no, we, do, we have not seen an uptick in, in crime, um, and uh, I certainly do not blame these pending uh, uh, changes in the law, so I'm not going to sort of, uh, you know, say the sky is falling just to make my point or to help them advocacy. What I will say is where I do see um, an increase uh, in criminal activities amongst young people, uh, ages 15 to 19, let's say, and that speaks to the, to the issues uh, you mentioned out at the Staten Island Mall, uh, some here at the Staten Island Ferry uh, and beyond. Uh, I'm worried about that. We're looking into it. We're monitoring the situation. Um, and I'm just hopeful that we can find a way to intervene in the schools and, and uh, in the communities to, to get a handle on that. But I don't attribute that directly to uh, this new package of laws that's coming down. And otherwise, um, the two areas that were concerned that we have here, um, that, um, you know, the increase has continued to be the opioid epidemic. Um, and then the area of domestic violence. And again, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't draw that correlation at this point. So, um, but it is, I'm, I'm, but it is your contention that if these reforms go into effect as written, uh, the the city is likely to see an uptick in 
um, you know, some more serious crime and disorder because more people will be allowed uh, to be released from from jail pre-trial because of certain offenses and their likely likelihood to um, to reoffend. Is that that sort of the contention at this what point? I, yeah. What I what I you know here in Staten Island, I've probably quadrupled the number of cases that uh, get into diversion, whether it's for addiction, uh, mental health. Uh, trying to attract, uh, attack the root causes of criminality um, and uh, expanded mental health court um, and, uh, and, and, and even batterers programs, a whole host of things in every area to try to reduce the rate of recidivism. However, I continue to believe that there is a small segment of the population uh, that does need to be incarcerated because of their propensity to continue to commit crimes, repeat uh, felons who have, you know, rap sheets that are uh, unfortunately very, very long. Um, and I'm afraid that in some circumstances, those people uh, upon arrest uh, or pen during pendency of a case will be able to uh, go and re uh, repeat their criminal activity. And in some cases where there are victims known to them, there could be some very horrendous outcomes. So, yes, I am worried about an increase in violence in certain circumstances. I'm not, uh, you know, standing on the, on the, on the, on the top of the Staten Island Ferry Terminal saying where it's all doom and gloom. There are some positive aspects to this package, but it could have been much better. Uh, and as the person who's the chief law enforcement officer and in charge with protecting uh, the people of Staten Island, I have to raise my concerns because... Um, the legislature did this the way that they did it. And just look to New Jersey the way they did it, much more thoughtfully, uh, much more comprehensively, with resources, and that's not what happened in New York. Why should we uh, sort of get the short end of the stick just because Albany hasn't done its job? And just lastly, um, I'll ask just, just to follow up on that. The, I think one of the arguments from the other side is that this package um, you know, puts into place reforms that will sort of ensure almost to the full extent possible that, you know, people that really shouldn't be locked up aren't locked up. And that, you know, for a lot of lower level offenses where people would really be, um, you know, kept in jail because they couldn't pay a, a fairly low level amount of bail, you know, folks refer to that as criminalizing poverty, um, you know, that they would be released to the almost the maximum extent possible. And that in exchange for that sort of larger measure of justice, there might be a few instances where people are released who shouldn't be and they wind up, you know, committing additional crimes while they're they're awaiting their next court date. But that that is sort of a balance in favor of justice. That is the, you know, sort of the right balance to strike. What What's your response to, to that? Well, uh, you tell that to the victim or the, the victim's family who uh, would maybe the, the uh, maybe may result out of the violence that you think might be acceptable uh, for this package. The better way to handle it would be on a case-by-case -case basis, give the judge the discretion to look at it, all the factors that judges look at across the country, right? In those instances that you say it may happen, that someone may re repeat a uh, offend and go out and, and, and do violence to someone, maybe a judge could have seen that in the person's record, but the law tied that judge's hands. Uh, why not allow the judges to have that discretion? I don't understand. And, and, and certainly, poverty should not be penalized. Of course, the board most misdemeanor offenses, I, I applaud that part of the law, uh, but you're, you're allowing, why do we have to accept 
those instances of violence to do what's right when in other jurisdictions they figured out how to do it. Fund the reform, put the services in place, and uh, be sensible in your demands on the prosecutors and the defense as well, and, and law enforcement, and don't take away the right, the, the, the power of the judges, the discretion of the judges, to continue to protect the community from those few individuals who are more, more likely than not going to uh, commit further crimes. All right, Staten Island District Attorney Michael McMahon, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Thank you. So we're here with Marie Jai, the Supervising Attorney at Legal Aid Society. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're talking today about criminal justice reform, and take us back to last winter, last spring, the reforms that the state legislature passed. Give us the quick rundown of what was accomplished there. Right. So I'll take you back to about 2018 election, actually, um, where after basically 10 years of having a Republican stronghold in the New York State Senate, um, you know, advocates were able to flip the Senate to make it purely Democratic, right? So we have a Democratic Assembly, a Democratic Senate, um, and a Governor Cuomo, of course, also a Democrat. And so we are finally able to move forward criminal justice reforms, which we haven't been able to do for decades now. Um, so the reforms that passed, obviously, the big three are the pretrial um, bills, discovery, bail, speedy trial. Um, we also passed... Um, a quasi-decriminalization of marijuana bill, but it included an important um, expungement provision, which New York State, for some reason, does not have expungement, really. Um, uh, ACD, uh, Workplace Discrimination Act, um, ACDs are adjournments in contemplation of dismissal, and basically what would happen is you would get an ACD, which means your case would be adjourned for six months and be dismissed, which is supposed to be a favorable disposition, but during that six months, it, it looked like it was pending, people could find it, employers could see it, it could deny you a job or stop you from resuming any work you were doing for like a state agency or whatever. So we <laughs> got around that. Um, one day to protect New Yorkers, um, reduce the penalty for a, a misdemeanor is technically a year, 365 days. It reduced it to 364 days to remove negative immigration consequences. Um, and so we we got a lot done. Yeah, that is the... Two that have been the most focused in recent weeks yeah. have been the bail reform and the discovery reform. And just talk about... This probably goes back even before the 2018 election, but what were the rationales for those changes? Right. So I'm, I supervise the decarceration project, so I'm going to start with bail um, because that is a bail project. The rationale for that is we had 25,000 people in New York State you know, at any given time who were held in jail pre-trial, um, who are presumed innocent simply because they couldn't afford the amount of money um, that was being asked for them you know, to gain release, basically. Um, and upstate, that was 60% of the jail population, right? So in New York City, while our Rikers population has been going down, in a lot of upstate counties, their jail populations were actually going up, and they were incarcerating people for really, really low-level offenses. So upstate, you can have bail set on you on a violation, which is kind of unheard of in New York City. Um, and, and then, again, mostly misdemeanors. On Rikers, 77% of the population is their pretrial, presumed innocent, um, and mostly they're on felonies, um, some misdemeanors, but a lot of nonviolent stuff. Um, 
and also because they can't afford, you know, to pay money to get out. Um, obviously ruining people's lives, um, no matter how this case ends up, all that time you spent in jail waiting, um, you know, has really devastating consequences for the person, their family, their communities, um, et cetera. And just the, the, a little bit of the sort of conflict on the bail discussion is around, you know, the, in general, bail is supposed to be um, paid as a way to ensure that a defendant returns for their court date, but in a lot of people's minds, it's sort of become a way to say, well, this person should really be kept in jail. Um, and, and it's sort of been um, gotten, gotten very fuzzy yes. <laughs> on the difference there between yes. those two. That's correct. And, and Bail, so what's yeah. the, the sort of goal here was to eliminate the idea that just because you couldn't pay $500, $1,000 in bail, you should still be released that's and, correct. And brought back for your court date. Yes. So bail traditionally or historically is supposed to be a mechanism of release, right? So the bail bill that New York actually currently has, the outgoing bail bill, I mean, to its credit, is not a terrible bail bill. It's just that because it has so much discretion in it, um, people were using it in a way that did not allow people to be released and actually um, had them being held in jail. But yes, the whole point is you go to court, you know, there's some determination made. The judge says, okay, I think this amount of money, if you pay it, will ensure you come back to court, except they're not paying an amount of money that people, they're not setting an amount of money that people can actually set and come back, which means that then they're left in just a position of, you know, usually being at Rikers, pleading guilty to get out of jail um, or being there for months or years waiting for their day in court. And we know that 95% of cases in I think, nationally and in pleas, right? So we have a guilty plea system. And, and so that was the bail discussion. And then discovery um, right. was also a topic of discussion for many years in New York State because our discovery laws were among the uh, worst in the country. That Yes, uh, among the four worst in the country. Um, and, and just this, for people not intimately familiar, when we say discovery laws, what's the sort of the goal and the, right. the framework there? So discovery is the process by which in any... Um, court case, so criminal, civil, whatever, where the two sides share information. You give evidence of what I'm claiming, you wronged me, here's my evidence, here's my medical bills or medical reports, if it's, you know, a tort or some kind of slip and fall. And in criminal cases, it's the prosecutor saying, here are my police reports, here are my witnesses, here's the video of the alleged incident that show you doing X, Y, and Z, or that you were at this scene at this time, right? Um, and like you um, said, in New York, the discovery laws were the four worst, or are, because it's not in effect yet, the four worst in the nation, right? So Texas has a better discovery law than we do. North Carolina has a better discovery law than we do. You know, New Jersey, some but of our neighbors. But by better, you just mean the, the prosecution has to show what they have sooner. Yes, open discovery, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in New York, we have the complete opposite, right? Um, Again, because it's a guilty plea system um, and our current law on discovery basically is like the prosecutor has to give you things before you go to trial. And so you would get a mountain of discovery on the eve of trial, right? Um, and some prosecutors have taken it a step further where they don't um, give you uh, witnesses' names or, you know, contact information. So somebody can have favorable 
evidence, um, you know, that would help your case, and you'd never know about it. And many, the vast majority of prosecutions in New York State and probably elsewhere, too, don't go to trial. They end in plea bargain. So people were pleading without knowing the kind of evidence that actually was amassed right. against them. Before we get into the, the critiques that have been mounted against both those sets of reforms, mm -hmm. there's the question that people have raised about the process. And I'm curious, you, you know, the, the argument that during the budget season, um, not everyone in the public was aware of exactly what, we, what were in these bills. Maybe not even every legislature was fully, uh, legislator was fully aware of what was in these bills. Is there any merit to that? I mean, did you know exactly what was in the bill as it was coming to pass? Yes. Um, I think that is a meritless claim because as somebody who's went to Albany all too many times during the budget session, I can tell you that we sat down and spoke with Democrats, Republicans, independence, um, everyone. You couldn't miss us. There were rallies. Um, there were protests. Um, you know, there were big press conferences. And these things were debated. You know, the, the way we were there, um, you know, trying to move forward our position. DAs were there doing the same for their positions. Law enforcement was there. Uh, you know, some victims groups that uh, swing that way were there. You know, this was an open process. It was debated. I can tell you that this was not, for either bill, it's not even where it originally started. So there were changes made, and some of those changes were to appease prosecutors. Some were, you well, know. Well, that gets it right. So yeah. those compromises, I think, are get get at where some of the rub has, has gotten here as this has been more and more debated heading into implementation, right, is a few of the pieces that the deals on those, even though there was a lot of these these details that were openly discussed, the sort of specifications of the deal that came together was kind of, as happens in legislature's 11th hour in terms of exactly what offenses would be on the, on the no bail list, mm -hmm. um, whether or not there was going to be some judicial discretion around remand, right? Um, so th things of that nature have come to be um, some of the big flashpoints here in this in this discussion. Right. Um, I can say that's not the case because, you know, for one, uh, a version of this bill actually passed in the Assembly last session, right? But la that session was when we still had a Republican Senate. It didn't go anywhere. But even then, when it was just an Assembly bill, um, it was negotiated, it was debated, um, there were lots of compromises made in that bill alone, and then it passed the Assembly. So everyone had a heads up. Mm -hmm. um, another bail version that was also being moved at the same time in the Senate um, was a bill that was sponsored by um, Senator Giannaris. And again, right, so we've had basically two sessions where both of these types of legislation and his bill, um, I would say the difference was that it eliminated uh, money bail completely. Uh, so both of those were moving at the same time. They were both being debated at the same time. And so everyone was aware that this sure, sure. we that's were going into one of these things, and those carve-outs were in those bills. Right, that's what I'm getting at. Okay, yeah. that's fair. What I'm getting at is the sort of final details were about this debate about completely eliminating cash bail versus keeping it for some level of offenses and, and sort of, you know, just all those those nuances. I'm not saying at all that sort of the debate wasn't had and absolutely was. Even among Democrats, there was right. really an intense, I mean, we covered that and you did as well, you know, about exactly what offenses mm -hmm. and whether there would be any discretion or whether, you know, certain felonies or misdemeanors would be included or not. Because basically my picture of what happened was, and you might have a different opinion, you were closer to it, was that there was discussion about whether to give judges the discretion to say there's a public safety reason to hold people. 
and that was replaced by making some offenses not eligible for bail and others uh, a small a very small number of offenses mm -hmm. still eligible for bail on the idea that those are more likely to be people who would pose a public safety threat that's obviously a way of eliminating the messiness of judge by judge discretion but it has other consequences too what did you, did right. you was that how it broke down and how did you think about that no, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. So New York State has never had a dangerousness, quote-unquote, assessment in our bail bill. So our current bill doesn't have it, and the bill that we're going into does not have it, right? So that's not really—and there are reasons for that. You know, this has been debated now in the legislature three times, and now three times they've said, we don't want this assessment because it does not get rid of the judge by judge. You know, it's actually more arbitrary, right? Somebody's going to come before you, and you're going to get, you know, the facts of the case. Maybe they have a rap sheet. Maybe they don't. But what if they're like— a college kid who actually does get into a lot of bar fights every time he goes out and gets drunk, but he never gets arrested. He doesn't have a rap sheet in front of him. You're like, this guy's not dangerous. I'm going to release him. But then you get somebody who's like in a heavily policed community. Um, you know, maybe they have a record. Maybe they have one or two fights. And then that person comes before the judge and the judge has all this information and they can be like, OK, well, I think this person is a danger to society and I'm going to put them in. My argument is not that either one of those people is dangerous. I think, you know, obviously bar fights and this circumstance probably, they're, you know, they're not what we think of when we're like, is this person a dangerous society? But when that, when those two people come before my judge, this person might be getting released because he's not dangerous and this person is going to go in. And in a system where there's no money bail, where it's just remand, that person goes in and there's no way for them, there's no mechanism for them to really get out until the case is resolved. And I think, again, that's going to mean more people pleading guilty to, you know, crimes just to get out of jail and not because they're actually guilty. So so let's stick with that for a second because one of the big pushbacks from district attorneys and other folks involved in law enforcement and even Mayor de Blasio, uh, among others, is that um, judges should have more discretion around public safety. And, they, and the mayor and others have said, let's alter this legislation in the new session to allow judges to have more discretion. Uh, Staten Island District Attorney McMahon has pointed to 47 states having judicial discretion um, around whether to release a defendant um, on public safety grounds. So is it not that this is the, the most common way to do it? You know, I, understanding the way that bias can play into it, the way that, that you just said, you know, the background around policing certain communities can, can play into it. Um, how do you sort of respond to the fact that it's across the country the more common practice? It's the most common practice because I think intuitively it kind of makes sense to people, but it's not the best practice, right? We're also talking about jurisdictions where we have a lower pretrial incarceration rate, right? And in places that do have um, this dangerousness assessment, they're not looking at the jail populations we're look, you know, we're looking at, right? So more people get incarcerated under those systems. Uh, you know, in New Jersey, for example, they did their own version of bail reform. It's still a flawed bill, but one of those flaws is because it's now just a dangerousness bill, more people are getting remanded, right? So it's not, it's the most common. It's not, I think, the better way. I think it's more arbitrary, um, more rot for um you know, discrimination and, and internal biases that you have against people, their background, their skin color. I mean, 
you don't even get into like colorism like mm-hmm. a light-skinned black person not looking as menacing as a dark-skinned black person you know what mm-hmm. I mean it's just it's I don't think it's the way some of the go. critics have listed you know the, the full list of offenses they think mm-hmm. should not be subject to bail reform um and have, have said broad brush that the, that the bill is is dangerous another critic the special narcotics prosecutor Bridget Brennan has had a more focused critique which is that the only according to her interpretation, that the the only um, major drug charge for which bail is permitted is to be a major trafficker, which is an A1 felony, mm-hmm. and that that is going to allow people who would have expressly the means to flee and hide international connections, a lot of money, um, for them to get out ahead of trial. And then that poses a very specific problem, and then that could be a very limited fix. What do you think about that argument, and what do you think about the idea that it's possible to tweak the law without damaging the overall reform impact. I think first, I've been meaning to say this. I want to push back on the thought that like we've eliminated judicial discretion in this bill, right? Judges still have discretion between whether they want to release someone, whether they want to release someone with non-monetary conditions, and that's a pretty open gambit of what those conditions can be, um, and whether what they want to set bail or remand people. So there's still discretion uh, discretion built into the statute. As to this specific drug offense, um, the 220-77 major trafficker um, is in a category where judges have the discretion to set any of those things. So Mm -hmm. they can set money bail if they want, um, they can remand the person, they can release the person with conditions, which is what they should do, right? There are things you can do to ensure that someone does not flee. Um, If there is a concern that they have ties somewhere else, you can take their passport, you know. There are other mechanisms. Jail is not the fix here for that, right? It's like, or or putting them in jail, just waiting for them to give you money, and then they're out, right? And if it's an amount of money they don't mind losing, then that person is a flight risk and is going to flee, you know? And so I think the motivation there is not so that the judge can set money bail that the person can make and come back. The motivation is that the judge will set bail that the person can't make, and then they're going to be stuck in jail. Um, they're going to maybe have to turn into a confidential informant, or they're going to you know, plead guilty to something that they have no business pleading guilty to, or pleading guilty because they're incarcerated and not because of the reasons why we would want someone to like, you know, take responsibility and plead guilty to a crime. On this, on this lengthy list of offenses that are... are you know, as, as you said, there are some ways in which there's judicial discretion that still exists, but in most cases, people are going to be released now. Uh, there's some supervised release that will mm-hmm. be enhanced, et cetera. But on this list of crimes that, uh, alleged crimes, of course, that people are calling for some changes to, maybe, you know, there's half a dozen to 10 of the more sort of serious among them that, that folks are saying, you know what, go back to Albany and and remove those from the sort of mandatory release list and and let's make some adjustments here on things related to, you know, certain things related to child uh, sex crimes or, you know, certain things that that where defendants they see pose a little bit more of a danger to society. Is there any discussion happening around saying, you know what, 
maybe there were a few of those offenses that went too far. No, you, there's no, uh, you're shaking your head, no, there's no. no There's no discussion on the reform no. side that maybe there were a few things that shouldn't have been on that list. No, to be, look, sex cases involving children are in the detention eligible bucket. So let's just get that out of the way. I think the issue with um, what you're describing, of let's just take the top 10, the things that sound, it's just that these a lot of these things just sound bad. I mean, a lot of it is that our criminal, our penal law just names things quite ridiculously, right? And prosecutors I, can overcharge. Yeah, and prosecutors well. can overcharge, but like sex abuse. If I told you somebody was charged with that, you would be like, oh my God, that is a really serious crime. Like, that must be terrible. There's a sex abuse charge that's a B misdemeanor, right? But it's called sex abuse. Forcible touching is the, you know, a crime that comes up a lot. Um, it's an A misdemeanor, right? And so if we just go by what we think, I think, like, intuitively, like, oh, this sounds bad, without any actually, like, digging into whether, like, what is the conduct here that is actually being um, reprimanded, then I think we, that's where you fall into the slope of, like, well, let's just put these things that sound bad back into the... Uh, you know, back into the buckets of people that should be held pretrial. And at the end of the day, all those people are presumed innocent, mm -hmm. right? So we should not be going off of what sounds bad or what... And, and that's going to be different for a lot of people. A lot of prosecutors um, are saying that, like, a, a misdemeanor assault. It's still an assault, but it's a mm -hmm. misdemeanor. That that should be in the bail bucket. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's no... There's We've no way to do this. We've talked for a long time about bail, but we only have a couple of minutes oh, left. I want to talk sorry. about discovery. Yes. No, bail is fascinating. I can talk about it all day. Um, the critique of the discovery law that you've heard, I'm sure, is that people are going to get witness names. Those witnesses will then be targeted for intimidation. That people who have been victimized in their home, their home being the crime scene, they'll have to you know, turn their home over to the defense attorney to come poke around and maybe the, the, the a charged person themselves coming by. Any merit to those concerns? No. Right? So if we're in the four worst of 50 states that, you know, all have discovery statutes um, and none of these other states are talking, are having this discussion, right? All of the states that have moved to an open early discovery frame, none of them have rolled it back. They all think it's actually more efficient. It's more fair. The prosecutors in those states do not have a problem with those bills. The prosecutors in New York have an issue with this bill because it is going to remove a huge, huge tactical advantage that they've had for decades, right? Which is that you don't tell me anything. I can't communicate anything to my client about what they're charged with, who's saying what, wh where it happened, you know, if there are other people who might say something different happened, right? And then that person's in a squeeze, they're held pretrial on bail, and they end up pleading guilty, and we never know what the prosecution's case was, right? I think that's the first thing. The second part is everyone who is accused of a crime is not going to go out and intimidate a witness. Like, that's not how... Most people, most crimes are people who are known to each other already. It's not a bunch of, you know, stranger offenses. Um, and it's just, like, trying to pathologize our, our clients, who are mostly black and brown, that, like, everybody who gets arrested of a crime all of a sudden just wants to go and, you know, rouse somebody. They could That could be happening now, and it's not, right? So I just think that fear is just unfounded. Um, and and in cases where it was in trouble, in cases yeah. where it was an actual fear, the prosecutor could seek a protective order yes. of the, that information. Right, and the, still in the, law. the law has protections, obviously, built in, you know, 
gang cases, a case where uh, witness intimidation might become an issue, where they can go to a judge and seek a protective order. And even the, you know, going and having access to a crime scene, which that's really what it is. It's not anything crazy. It's like, if the allegation is that this thing happened at XYZ, how am I going to fully defend my client if I've never seen XYZ? I don't know where XYZ is. I don't know if the table is where they said it was. You know, whatever the case may be, it's not something that is really far-fetched. Um, and again, even in that system, there are built-in protections. You have to go to a judge. The judge has to allow the access order of who goes and when and how. And so I think these things are, you know, really baseless. All right, well, we could talk to you for hours, Marie Jai, from the Decarceration Project of Legal Aid Society, but we thank you for, for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you.